Father, help us to take advantage of this opportunity to hear from you. Father, to early in the process, to set aside the things we brought in with us. The hurt, the anger, our sadness. Whatever it might be that we can worship you today. Father, thank you for the music that we have heard. Our spirits, it is lifted. And be with us now as we dig in your word. And help us to hear from you. And we pray in the only name worth praying in, the name of Jesus. Amen. I am glad to be here this morning. I hope that you are glad to be here this morning. And if you're not, I'm just glad you're here anyway. We're going to be an unresponsive group today, are we? We're going to start off in Matthew chapter 5. So if you brought your Bibles, join me there. In Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're starting off in Matthew 5 because that's where we're going to kind of launch from for the next couple of weeks. Uh, as Steve is away on vacation, uh, David and Jamie and myself will be filling his spot. So I've my hair combed in a tribute to him. I knew you would like that. And, uh, and I have to cheer for Kentucky today, just for him. The idea behind the series is flipped, and the thought process there is really simple. We come to Scripture with one idea, or the world tells us one truth. And we come to God's Word, and God has a way of taking that and turning it over, and it always seems to come back at us changed, different, flipped. That's the idea. So a couple of weeks ago, we began working on what I would have the opportunity to present this morning. And not being particularly original, I thought I would ask you. So I did. So on Facebook several weeks ago, I asked you guys, what makes you angry? Turns out, just about everything. I have never posted something that has received so many responses as just the simple question, what makes you angry? Some of you have some really short tempers. I got 36 different responses to a random question like that. And you've seen some of them up on the screens at different points today, and you've wondered, what in the world is that all about? It's you! Not specifically, but I sort of took the responses I got and, and narrowed them down to big concepts and ideas. Some of you don't like racists. Some of you are upset with cheaters. A few of you are really irritated with the government. Some of you don't like liars. Some of you do not like the way I drive. Keep that to yourself, by the way. Lots of anger in our group. <laughs> and everybody that responded isn't necessarily of our uh, church body here, but it was a good snapshot of what's out there. Lots of things make us angry. Do you have stuff that makes you angry? That's the part where you respond. Sure, we have things that make us angry. And we like to say that it makes us angry. That made me mad, that person, what they did. It angered me. This caused me to be angry. That's how we like to say it. Sherry and I were at a marriage conference one time, and the guy got up and he says, you know what, nothing really makes you mad. I thought, you don't know. He said, no, it doesn't make you mad. There are things that take place and people that encounter your life that reveal 
that you were an angry person. And I looked over at Sherry and I went, that makes me mad. <laughs> because then you have to be responsible for it, right? And we don't want to be responsible for it because ever since from the very beginning, we've shirked our responsibility and pointed to whoever's beside us, right? That's, that's how we do. It's how we function. And Jesus comes to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he begins to teach. And he sets up this dichotomy at the beginning through most of the Beatitudes. And then he gets into some practical application things, which was his way. So we're going to start there, and we're going to end up over in John's Gospel. So just two places today, and I'll probably end up in a few others, but for you primarily, Matthew 5 and John 2. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, and he begins to talk about these different groups of people. And he says, Blessed are the poor, in verse 3, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. And so... There's these poor people, and they're going to receive everything, right? The kingdom of heaven. They're going to receive it all. So there's this dichotomy, this idea of things being flipped. Blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. There it is again. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So here we have the meek and the mild, the non-warriors, and they inherit what we've been fighting over for so many centuries. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they, they're going to be filled. They're going to be satisfied. Those that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they'll be satisfied in that righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive then mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he goes on down and he begins to describe this idea. And that's, that's where the whole flipped thing comes from. The idea that the way God sees everything and the way we see everything is very often very different. And then Jesus begins to describe some things in our world and the idea of personal relationships. And that's where we're going to pick things up there in verse 21. So Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus speaking. It's all red letters if you have a red letter edition. And Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But, and he flips it, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And so Jesus begins to teach about anger. Now, I am not an anger expert. I am pretty even-keeled. When Sherry and I teach and have the opportunity to, to talk to couples about marriages, we compare it to ice cream. Some of you have a chocolate ice cream marriage. It's good, right? Some of you have that rainbow sherbet. It kind of goes through some different things. It's good. It's okay. It's good. <laughs> a few of you have what we're going to refer to as chocolate jalapeno. It's bad. It's good. It's bad again. <laughs> Right? Sherry and I have a vanilla marriage. It's good. Still good. It's good. I just, I don't get real riled up. And the reason I don't get real riled up is because essentially uh, when I get angry, I have a tendency to be a little more passive aggressive. So I'm not going to come to you directly and go, I can't believe you stole my parking place, but you will have a flat tire when you leave later today. <laughs> I will never comment to you about it. Now, other people deal with anger in different ways, right? Because I'm even keeled, I tend to just sort of, it's much more subtle. I'll come and talk to you about it, but I don't ever really get riled up. Now, 
Others of you are very different. Some of you are extremely emotional folks, and you do get very riled up. You're the ones who emailed me your response to what makes me angry as opposed to posting it in front of everybody. Seriously. And, uh, and we're, we're working with those people. And uh, it's getting better. But he says, if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty before the court. And then he continues. He says, but whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He's pretty serious about anger. If therefore, verse 23, you are presenting your offering at the altar. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering. Go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. It's so important, Jesus says, that if you arrive in our world in church and you realize, you know what, I've got this issue, this this unresolved anger, this thing that's going to be in between my ability to come into God's presence. Leave your stuff in your chair so nobody steals your seat in our day, right? Leave your offering there. Go and deal with it. And whether that means going to somebody or whether that means I'm going to step outside for a minute and I'm going to pray before God and just make sure that he and I are right and then come worship. So it's a pretty strict deal when it comes to being angry, right? 36 different people decided to let me know what irritates them, what makes them angry, and they did it in 80-something different lines of text. So for most of them, it wasn't something short. They were extra descriptive. You know, that lady at the cash register, the one who always says sweetie all the time. Oh, it really annoys me. You know, that kind of stuff. And so Jesus tells us, you've heard that murder is bad. I'm going to tell you, being angry is bad. And now to open the can of worms. Did uh, Jesus ever get angry? And that was... Okay. I would have to agree with you. I believe that there were times where he did. And so there's this apparent disregard for his own teaching here, which is taking place early in his ministry, as we're going to follow through his ministry, where we're going to find places where Jesus seems to get angry. One of those places is in the temple. Now, he just told us, If you show up at God's house and have this issue, you need to leave your stuff, go fix it, then come back and worship. And yet Jesus himself will go to the temple, make a whip, run everybody out. Now, it sounds like he wasn't taking his own advice, doesn't it? Isn't it always fun where you you start preaching and you realize scripture doesn't agree with itself? Let's just create a big mess. Except it's not a mess. Because you dig down through it, and it's interesting to me what's really going on there. Because if we take 
this tree and that tree, they don't seem to go together. But when we back up and we look at Scripture as a whole, we look at the forest, we know from the whole of Scripture that Jesus doesn't sin. We know from the whole of Scripture that Jesus is not going to teach us something here and then not follow it himself here. If those things are true, then our conclusion in looking at this sort of small moment can't be right. It has to be something else. And so we turn into John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, toward the latter part of chapter 2, Jesus is going up to the temple. Now, since it's chapter 2, is it early in Jesus' ministry or late in Jesus' ministry? It's early, right? I mean, it's chapter 2. It's, it's near the beginning. In verse 13, the Passover is taking place. And it reads this way. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge, a whip, of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This sounds like a calm, rational individual, doesn't it? Not the way we read it like that. Let me explain a little bit about what's happening. The money changers and the guys selling all of this stuff, because worship was centered around making an offering to God, how the temple was constructed in the Old Testament. At one point, these guys were sitting on the hillside over near the Mount of Olives. And you'd stop by there on your way into Jerusalem if you hadn't brought an animal with you and find one that was appropriate for the sacrifice that you were coming to make. Or if you were making a financial offering, you went to the money exchangers there to get temple coin as opposed to the common everyday coin to be able to then present at the temple. And over time, those guys migrated from the hillside down toward the gates, I would imagine, and now at this point are actually inside the temple courts. The temple is constructed, if you can kind of picture it in your mind, it's a big rectangle. In the middle on one end is the Holy of Holies, and outside of it is an inner court, and outside of that is an outer court, and it's in this outer court that we find ourselves today. What's happened is the priests, the religious leaders of the day, have begun a relationship with a lot of these vendors. And in that relationship, if you as a family come and you've brought your dove for the sacrifice, I, the priest, look at that and I know because of how it's marked or what's associated with it that it's not from one of my vendors. And so I wrongly look at it and go, you know, that's, that's not pure. You need to get a dove from these guys. And so you go over and you exchange and work it out, pay some extra money. You get an appropriate one because I get a kickback from that. And you bring that dove. And I look at it and go, oh, yes, that one's, that one's perfect for worship. Or you go to get temple coin. And you give them. It's just like in our world today. If we were to fly out of here internationally and we arrive, there's an exchange station set up at the airport. And we go and we hand them dollars. They hand us back pound sterling or whatever it is, wherever we happen to be. And we don't get an even trade. We don't even get an even trade based on the exchange rates. Because that company makes money off of the exchange. Make sense? And so this is taking place in the temple. 
And it's gradually over the years moved into this outer court. This particular instance where Jesus goes in and clears the temple, and I'm going to kind of create another mess just for you to wrestle with over lunch as well, because it's just what I do, is early in Jesus' ministry. The other three Gospels all have this same story in them, but they place it somewhere else. So if you go to Luke, if you go to Mark, if you go to Matthew, the same scenario plays out, but it plays out at the end of Jesus' ministry. They have the triumphant entry at the end of Jesus' ministry as he comes into Jerusalem and people are there waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna! And it has the triumphant entry and then it has him going into the temple, running this group out of the temple court, minus the whip, mind you. And then he sits down and he begins to teach. And they bring people to him to be healed. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the reason in one gospel it's at the beginning and the reason that the other three gospels it is at the end is not because one or three of them don't know how to tell time but is rather because it happens more than once. Because in John's gospel the triumphal entry is recorded. Jesus goes into the city. The next verses following the triumphant entry in John's gospel say this. And there were certain Greeks going up to participate in the sacrifices that were taking place. The only place that the Greeks could go to participate in the sacrifices that were taking place is the outer court of the temple. And so as John is describing the triumphant entry, the only place Jesus would have run into these guys is there. That's where they have gone. Because the way the temple is set up, there are signs around the inner court. And they say, Jews only. And the Jews were given the rights by the Romans that if you entered inside of the inner court, if you went past those signs, the sentence was death. It is the reason that Paul got into such trouble. Because they seized Paul in the inner court and took him out to kill him, realizing he's a Roman citizen. And then it dawned on them, oh wait, no, he is a Jew. it was okay for him to be where he was. But the only place that the Gentile world, that we, were allowed to go is in that outer court. In fact, it's called the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus walks into this court of the Gentiles and begins to remove all of these people. And he sounds angry. Verse 17 says, His disciples, after this, remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. In reference to Jesus. I'm going to put it to you this morning that in this experience, it is not the anger of Christ that drives him to this act but it is his zeal. And I'm going to draw a line difference between those two things. Anger is defined very simply as an emotional interpretation of a psychological response to feeling wronged, denied, or offended. And it often results 
in retaliation. And so my anger is part of my emotions. It comes when I interpret a psychological response. So it's an emotion. Now, are we in control of our emotions? Some of you aren't so sure. We say love is an emotion. When you wake up in the morning, do you feel love all the time? No. Right? My wife and I stood on a stage like this, and we committed to love one another. I did not commit to feel lovely all the time. I did not commit to feel love every day, but I committed to make a decision that I will love her forever. Love's a decision. So when I get up in the morning, I make a decision. I will love you all day today. Because I'm kind of a one day at a time person. Tomorrow I will make the same decision. When Sherry gets up in the morning and realizes that my socks have once again not made it into the correct basket, she doesn't feel love. But she makes a decision. Anger, however, is an emotion. Emotions are a little bit harder to control. Especially an emotion that is wrapped around our interpretation of a situation. Our perception. So imagine it for a minute. You're arriving at Walmart later this afternoon because you forgot something and they have everything. And you see the perfect parking spot. You've been waiting on them to move out of the way an entire four or five seconds. It's an eternity. And someone swoops into that parking spot. You're now angry. So what do you do? You wait 45 minutes on the next spot to open. So you can park so close to them that there's no way on God's green earth they'll ever be able to get in the car on that side. Right? Anger drives us that way. When we're angry, you make me angry. You're, what you did, it infuriates me. I've lost my temper. Versus zeal. I have a passion for. I love it when. I am excited about. I am willing to. Those things are different. One of them I don't have to be responsible for. You made me mad. Your actions caused my reaction. The other one, I have to be responsible for. I have a passion for. I am willing to. I love whatever. I have to own that. This I can excuse. I can put it off on somebody else. Zeal, by definition, is excitement in embracing, pursuing, defending anything or anyone. It is dedication. When you have zeal, you are willing. You are energized. You are motivated. And so is Jesus here acting out of anger? Is he acting out of zeal? When Sherry and I first got married, we bought some really expensive furniture. It was $320 for a couch, a love seat, and a chair. It was great. We had to bring it home ourselves because we didn't want to pay for the delivery charge. And 
it was a hideous color pattern, as I recall. But it looked good on the hardwood floors I had just finished. So we very carefully carried it in together, one piece at a time, set it down where it would live forever. Right, fellas? Except a short while later. Once I had actually sat down in one of them, my lovely bride comes in and goes, You know... I think that couch would look better over here. And the love seats over there, we can create like a conversation area. Now this is a topic we've already discussed. So we move it. And then I sit down. And she comes in a few minutes later. You know, if... And all she said was, if, and I went, and so we moved it again, because <laughs> that's how I am. I don't remember how many times after that we rearranged this stuff on the floors, but I remember being furious on the inside that we had had to do this over and over and over again. I was angry. I was having an emotional response to having to move the furniture, and she was coming in intentionally making us do this. And I sat down. And then my lovely wife wanted to come sit in my lap and cuddle. I think not. <laughs> right? She's experienced the same situation, but has had a completely different outcome. How did that happen? Because she has a zeal for moving furniture. It's her passion. She wants the room to be inviting and look just right. I just want it to feel good to me. Jesus has a zeal for something. I don't think it's anger because in the accounts of this event, after he has cleared the court... The Bible records that he sits down and he begins to teach. And he begins to heal people. And he stays in the temple. We have three girls at our house. And our oldest is in the process of getting ready to be out on her own. We are very excited. When she was a teenager, uh, slamming the door was a problem. You remember those days? I'm angry. I'm not going to stay and discuss this with you. Therefore, pow! Right? Her room no longer has a door. There's a little curtain. Curtains are really hard to slam. But when we get angry, we stomp off to leave because we're mad. But Jesus doesn't leave. He doesn't poke his lip out and pout. He doesn't kind of in an indignant sort of way move out. He sits down and he begins to teach. Can't do that, being angry. I think it's because he has a zeal. Why does he have a zeal? Well, I began to think about where he is. He's in the court of the Gentiles. He's in the only place in the temple where people who weren't Jews could come to hear about God. 
the only place. They couldn't go in any further. So if they had questions about God, if they had intentions of observing God's commandments, if they wanted to know more from a priest, this is their spot. And instead of being able to access God, God's people have gotten in the way of the lost folks being able to come in and have an encounter with God. And Jesus, his zeal for people, drives him to remove the obstacle. In other words, he makes access available for the lost the non-Jew. Later in his ministry, the same thing would happen. He would hang on a cross. And upon his death, a veil would be torn. And access to the Holy of Holies would be granted. It's not out of the ordinary for him. It's just part of the process. His zeal drives him. Not his anger. He's flipped it but you might say you don't know what's happened to me I I have the right to be angry I am justified in my anger and in some cases for a limited time I would agree with you there are things that happen that anger us and I don't think that's bad but at some point You have to turn loose of them. You have to flip it toward zeal or toward passion. Because if you don't, the anger consumes you. It drives you. It causes you to hate people. That's not this. How do I do that? You know, there's a lot of examples of, of groups that have done that. Do you think the folks that founded MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, do you think that started off with them being angry? Of course it did. One of them had a child who was hit by a person who drank and then decided to drive. And in that accident, they perished. Do you think they were angry? Certainly they were. Did they hold on to it forever? No. They turned it into something good. They turned it into a passion for educating people in a better way. The folks over at Project Aware, angry because of what was happening in our oceans, turned it into a passion, an organization that helps with that. America's Most Wanted, long TV series, started off an angry response. (laughs) A dad upset because of what happened to his son. But he turned that anger into a zeal and it became a positive tool. The amber alert that you see, I'm sure in its initial, was founded by somebody who was angry because of what happened to their child and they felt helpless. But then they turned loose of anger and allowed God to change it and have something very positive come out of it an easier way to get the word out when bad things have happened. Today I want to encourage you to turn loose of your anger. Your anger about church, 
about your spouse making you move too much furniture, your kids, your job, whatever the situation is. And allow God to turn it into something good. Maybe you're angry about child abuse. You're your pastor or somebody else's. And that can be turned into a zeal for helping kids. Or maybe you're angry about your marriage. It's not what I bought into. I'm supposed to be happy, and I'm not. If you read the fine print, it doesn't mention happy. It talks about joy. You can turn that into a passion for helping couples. I'm angry because I feel like a failure. And God can take that this morning and flip it on its head and turn it into an amazing story. He cleaned out the court so that you could come and hear about him. This morning, would you take time and enter his court to hear about his zeal, his love for you? I want to take time and pray for you this morning. When we finish praying, we're going to stand and sing together. And As we're doing that, if God moves you this morning to lay it here and go deal with it, and then worship, you do that. If God moves you this morning, hey, I've been so irritated with my parents because of how they treat me and what they do and what they say. I'm angry about it. It might be your day to come lay that down. Or maybe you're the parent that's angry with your kids. Maybe this morning you're justified in being upset. But you're ready to turn loose and let God flip your life around. Because he has an amazing thing in store for all of you. So would you join me in praying this morning? And then we'll stand and sing together. Father, thank you, God, so much for what you do for us. Lord, you are so patient, more than I could ever be. You are so amazing. And Lord, I know that there are times when your anger burns. And you know the right amount of time to hold on to it. Exactly what to do when it encounters you. And when to turn it loose. There are lessons I struggle with. So, Father, this morning, my prayer, like so many, help me to turn loose of that that angers me and embrace your passions, your zeal. Help us to be a church that doesn't stand in the way of folks coming to you, but that has cleared the court and anxiously anticipates their arrival. Thank you, God, that the inner veil was torn we can stand in your presence unabated by things like that God this morning I pray a freedom on this place that as we sing anyone who needs to deal with you would feel the freedom to come to this altar and do so and I pray in the name of Jesus who cleared the way for us Amen